Hello, my name is Sarah Mukherjee and this is Sustainable Matters, the podcast all about big ideas and hope for the planet. A show where we are realistic about the challenges we face, but also optimistic about the future. This week's guest is Dr. Anne-Marie Imaphodon, MBE, a maths whiz from East London who has always looked at ways to put herself out there and to find a comfortable way to be visible. I would have never in a million years guessed that it's not the youngness, it's not the blackness, it's not the femaleness, it's the non-bell ringingness that is is the alien part of me here. (laughs) She famously passed her maths A level at 11 and went on to gain a master's in computer science from Oxford University at just 20, the youngest person ever to do so. Ten years ago, she set up the STEMETS, an organisation dedicated to inspiring and supporting girls, young women and non-binary young people into STEM, that science, technology, engineering and maths careers. Her dad was an engineer, her brother was an engineer, and when she said she wanted to be an engineer, her dad was like, well, no, anything that you design will just burn down. Why would that be something you want to do? Dr. Imaphidon is a perfect guest for Sustainable Matters because her optimism for tech solutions, as you'll hear, is totally infectious. And she's all about investing in the next generation of talent. I have hope in the future of sustainability and what will be possible and how much we will be able to solve problems. Like I said, with an interdisciplinary, more open set of folks, more diverse set of folks. At the end of the episode, Anne-Marie will nominate someone who she looks up to for the next episode of Sustainable Matters. And she shares her excellent top tips for networking and keeping on learning. But when we met, she was enjoying a rare brief stint back at home in East London. (laughs) I just I touched the ground and then and then I'm pulled away. Uh, But yeah, I'm, I'm back in East London at the moment. So we started by talking about whether having somewhere to call home is important. This is always a funny one for me to kind of mull on because I get to meet so many different people. You know, it'd be like, oh, I was born in Finland, but then we grew up in the States. And then, you know, now me and the wife and kids are in Kenya and I've met them in an event in Bucharest. And I always feel a little bit (laughs) like home is maybe more important for me than I realise because mine is I grew up in East London and our family GP is at the end of where I bought my first flat. And now I'm still just a mile away and I'm I'm never moving again from the house that I'm in at the moment. (laughs) But I probably am taking for granted that there's so much of a route that I have um, here in this corner of London because I went to school there and I went to primary school there and my it's all postcode E, never ever any other postcode other than of course when I went to university. And even then I was still coming back to E and it wasn't as loud as E and so I didn't really sleep as well. (laughs) Oh, it's so right, isn't it? I mean I I remember going to my first week in Oxford and hearing church bells (laughs) and not understanding quite what they were. (laughs) (laughs) My thing at Oxford was I knew what the bells were, but I'd never ever thought about how the bells ring. When you go to someone in Oxford, you think that there's certain things that are going to make you feel like other or feel different. My senior tutor was the senior fellow for the Oxford University Bell Ringing Society. And there was someone in my year that was a member and then someone in the year above that was a member. And so we'd be in, I don't know, Massachusetts and talking about groups and it'd be like, ha ha ha, this is like that bell. I don't even know, configuration, rhythm, I don't know what it is. And it's so funny to be sat in that room thinking, 
I would have never in a million years guessed that it's not the youngness, it's not the blackness, it's not the femaleness, it's the non-bell ringingness that is the alien part of me here. If I could perhaps take you back to the beginning of that journey, because mm. um, what I think is really interesting is a young girl in a working class area who doesn't see any boundaries or horizons and thinks, okay, I'm really, really good at this subject. Um, here's the exam. Why don't I just yeah. do it? I mean, when you talk to your mum and dad about this, what did they say? I mean, how was the dynamics and, and how did you even get to do it that young? I think I'm really, really fortunate looking back that the primary school that I went to in Walthamstow, I was bouncing off the walls. Yeah. Like, you know, maths is something where if you say it once, I get it and then we're fine. Yeah. And I was like, why? You said this in year two, we're now in year four. Why are we going over this again? Of course, repetition is a very cool part of learning. And so at parents' evening, it would come up again and again, <laughs> just bouncing off the walls. There's 30 of them. Amory's one of 30. So, you know, when we've done it and she's got it, we also need others to be able to get it. And so, you know, what are the other, bit, other bits that we can do? Our head of numeracy in my primary school is a guy called Mr. Davies, who we're still trying to find him, actually, who kind of said, you know, I've heard, I've heard of folks doing this accelerated thing. Maybe that's something we should do for all of our sanities. That was the initial thing my parents being like, okay, well, if they're saying it, why don't we lean into this? But also they're Nigerians and Nigerians love education. For me, my perspective on it all was, yeah, like give me something else because I actually quite enjoy it and I don't really want you to just repeat what I've already heard. I already know. I also have cousins that are four years older than me. And it's so funny as a kid, right? These are the, these are the things that matter to you. There would be certain things when we're at our cousin's house that they're allowed to watch that I wasn't allowed to watch. And all these things get lauded over you. And I remember this GSCE, GCE, GSECG, whatever thing, that it was always like, oh, no, we've got those. You know, we're, we're better than, <laughs> than the younger cousins. And so I was like, oh, GCSEs? Yeah, if I can do that and be like her, then, you know, <laughs> not only am I no longer being bored at school, but also now I can be like my older cousin. So maybe I can watch those naughty TV shows. And I also have to say that, again, approaching it, it wasn't that, oh, I'll definitely pass this. I, I, I was as shocked as everybody else was on results day when it came back. And it was like, yeah, you've passed like B, B and C was what I got in year six. And I was like, wow. <laughs> OK. My parents were really, really and to this day, I credit them with being so supportive. And I know my mum will have had reservations and worries and concerns. But actually, with a lot of things, they just let us lean into it. And as long as we really weren't being hurt, weren't harming ourselves, then there was a lot of freedom for us to explore things. It's, it's really interesting you say that because you've identified a really supportive teacher and supportive parents as well. Mm. Do you think that it's more difficult to find those supportive teachers not from any want of people wanting to be supportive but just because there's far less time there's far more children now to look after the whole system is much more stressed in 10 years of stamets we've got to meet a lot of teachers as you can imagine there are a lot of teachers out there that are opening up opportunities for their young people there's a lot of teachers who want to do that and don't have the capacity there's a lot of teachers who are just trying to make ends meet and that's not just even you know financially but that's in the time that they have in the pressures from SLTs in the knock-on effects of funding that's been cut in other areas where they end up being therapists or social workers or 
a bank, you know, or on top of that, or they're also not being paid, right? The, the system is incredibly underfunded. And so I think credit against my teachers that they didn't see me bouncing off the walls as behavioral problems, which under the Hamilton Commission was something we definitely saw quite a lot. And it actually happened to Lewis Hamilton himself, you know, it was almost expelled because the head teacher had, had kind of just didn't like that this was something that he was doing that he was great and you know can you imagine doing that to be Sir Lewis Hamilton because you thought he was just this working class black boy from Stevenage like what you know what what what's he got to do with you know a high-end sport and so I think there still is a lot of that that ends up going on but there's always the opportunity for teachers to do this but we have to be systemically supportive of teachers to do that I think with parents this is where so much of what we do in threats and so much of the branding and the role modeling and the appearances is why I do it, because I think there's also a need for parents and society to be able to recognize these things in girls, in young non-binary people, in, in kind of the non-usual suspects, but also in what we reflect to them. And over 10 years working with so many people, we've had 60,000 young people come through and alongside that volunteers as mentors, as role models, as speakers, as all sorts. And it's so interesting to hear stories from folks where, you know, one of our volunteers who's a woman who actually has an MBE, so it's top of, top of her, her game in engineering, you know, has told us the story several times of her dad was an engineer, her brother was an engineer, and when she said she wanted to be an engineer, her dad was like, well, no, anything that you design will just burn down. Why would that be something you want to do? Right. So that's an engineer saying that to their own daughter. I, I now can look back and be like, yeah, I was really lucky that I didn't have a brother for my parents to say, no, that's for your brother to do, not for you to do. But also that my teachers didn't just expel me for constantly telling jokes all day and talking to my friends, because that was what I was doing when I was bored in math lessons. Exactly. And I, th- I suppose this is a good opportunity to ask you. Uh, which you've touched on, but some of the the challenges, because I think sometimes people at the start of their career are looking at a CV like yours and they think, well, how could I ever possibly do something as amazing as Anne-Marie? I mean, look at all the things that she's done. But sometimes people just don't see the failures or the challenges that have happened. And could you perhaps, you know, give us a sense of, of where you did have a bit of a sticking point or and and where you overcame it and and what you needed to do to overcome those obstacles I think life is the challenges I just had to say to a member of my team the other the other week that life isn't the bits that you plan it's the interruptions so I think I think there's definitely something that folks are always surprised to hear of Um, not every teacher loved me and not every teacher (laughs) was very supportive Um, I remember my secondary school had this thing where if you wanted to apply to Oxbridge for university you had to be one of their selected 10 or 11 and on the Tuesday I'd gone to another sixth form locally and had applied because I was like I I kind of have an inkling that (laughs) things aren't going to go well if I stay here in this school and so I went to the interview and in the interview the head of six that I I eventually ended up at was like oh my goodness you've already got this A level that A level that A level why don't we just apply this year for you and also Oxbridge right and that was in the interview to enter the sixth form and on the Thursday I sat with the head of six of my existing secondary school said I wanted to apply to Oxford and she threw her head back and she laughed at me what you think you can you think we're gonna we're gonna help you do that <laughs> uh no no chance that's something that we would even think of suggesting for you to be a part of another challenge would be just before i started stemets so as i said stemets is 10 2012 i was working in industry and a conference came up and someone had got two spots to speak at the conference was like actually emory you're working in this team on, on this technology 
you should be the person that sits on that panel instead. And I was like, brilliant. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. At that point, there was a travel ban. If you weren't an MD, apparently you couldn't, weren't allowed to speak, da, 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 all this kind of stuff. And so again, it was that if you go, and the company was sponsoring this conference as well, if you go, pay your own flights, pay your own whatever, we're almost doing you a favor by being like you're allowed to speak at this thing. No, I did an internal crowdfund on our internal platform where another MD somewhere else in the company was like, oh my goodness, look at what this young woman is doing. Whatever anyone gives, I'm going to double it. So I managed to crowdfund from the platform, at which point it had gone wide enough that my higher ups had seen it and kind of said to my boss, what are you doing? Of course, we should be supporting her to go. Third example will be at this same company. So I love databases, have loved them since I was 10 years old. And this particular tech we're working on, I was the data, I love I loved the database, right? And so we're at an offsite. So we've all flown to Germany to all work together on this thing in person. And I'm left in the kind of technical room with the technical folks trying to troubleshoot some big problems we have around just finding information in this system. Anyway, so we're talking through some of the problems and I'm like, well, we've got that field in the database automatically so we actually don't need to do this new work where we go and tag everything we can just write a query that uses that information and there's a german guy called felix who kind of looked at me and was like mm, yeah i'm not, i don't think about that i'm, I'm not sure I, I, I don't think that's i don't think you know it feels that easy why would why haven't we already <laughs> come up with it then <laughs> proceeded to spend 90 minutes kind of creating this really complicated system of adding things and then updating everything you know and so 90 minutes later there's a there's another contractor that's in the room who's been kind of digging through the details and it's like oh no this is here and yeah the flow that Amory was talking about is here we can use it and Felix is there kind of looking for the hidden camera because he's clearly been pranked because this little black girl from East London knows more about the database system than he does. And his solution, he just spent 90 minutes, you know, creating and manufacturing is not going to be useful. In fact, Felix actually said to my manager when they came back, when we all came back together, was like, did you, did you plant <laughs> that idea on her? <laughs> and so I have to look back and like, okay, cool. These challenges, what, why were these challenges challenges? Is there anything that I, that is in my control that would mean that if I face this again or come up against this again, I can change it? Or is it because I was young that that person thought that? Is it because I was black that that person thought that? Is it because I was a woman that that person thought that? Are those inside my control? Because I can't change my age. I'm not changing my gender. My heritage is not really something that's for me to go and edit and play with. And then it's only years later with the space of time, I'm able, in hindsight, I'm able to look back and be like, yeah, for Felix, he'd never met anyone like me, took less of worked with someone like me and then being then not knowing less than me on someone like me on something that then in a professional setting he then is made to look that way it's like how dare I you know and is that a challenge for me or is that a challenge for Felix is that a challenge for me or is that a challenge for my head of six because I still went to Oxford and so I think that's the approach that I have with a lot of challenges and they continue to come, but that, that is the work almost, I think, from the way that I see it. So, and, and that's that's a really interesting point, I think, because in both of those examples or those three examples that you gave, there was an innate confidence. And I wonder whether that comes from being a maths genius, because I get the sense that with maths, you know, there is a clear solution if you're able enough to be able to see the solution and it's kind of right or wrong. So 
of course you'd set up a crowdfunding because I should be here. I've already been given this opportunity. What's the solution in, in the kind of decision tree? What are the things I can do? That is not a confidence that maybe some people have in their own abilities, despite being really, really able. Yes, that's a good point you picked up on there, because I think there's a confidence that I got from not thinking I was going to get that GCSE and then being like, oh my goodness, someone independently said that, meant that that becomes a foundation that I'm always building, or I can always trace back to whatever the, the latest independent achievement was. I'm not sure that it's the maths per se, but I think there's there's something about positive formative experiences that is why we start at five, we go up to 25, so before you started your first job. And it's about giving folks the opportunity to build those positive formative experiences so that then they're reinforced when they do end up in the workplace or they do end up in life. Life is more complicated than maths. You know, we can also say that. As an example, you know, me passing the GCSE, I was allowed to take the opportunity in a way that if more folks had that opportunity, more folks would pass GCSE maths. And so with Stemets, every half term, let's say, since October 2019, we've given this opportunity to young people. So every half term or summer holiday, we do an Agile, a Cyber or a Python certification for groups of teenagers. So groups of teenage girls and non-binary young folk from across the country. And they're doing that like it's nothing. And these are things that adults pay two and a half grand to do. And then they go off and charge, you know, 600 quid a day as a scrum master or whatever it might be. But we're allowing the girls to do that. We don't pre-select it's, are you available? We'll pay for the train ticket. We'll pay for your food. And if a parent needs to come with you because of your age, we'll pay for them to come and stay with you too, wherever we're doing the certification academy. But doing that, like we've got now hundreds of Amorees, if you really want to call it that, that is something that's going to stick with them. And they're going to be in the workplace and look across and see folks sweating for these things and be like, yeah, no, we did that. <laughs> yeah, it was October half term. We just did the Agile with Moonpig and they showed us how it works. And then we submitted our portfolios and we, and we got the certificate. What's the big, and I think that is probably what I have and what then ends up being, like you're saying, that repeatable mathematical approach to different things. And from that, and it's a great kind of moving to the conversation about STEMETs, we've got to the stage now, I mean, we at IEMA work with 20,000 individual members and, and hundreds of, of corporate members as well. And we're hearing from everybody that there is a desert in terms of the number of people coming through for sustainability skills, bearing in mind that a lot of our, our members are from scientific background. Do you think it's push or pull that has made STEMET so successful? Do you now have people kind of waiting outside the door to pick up these talented young people and start looking at, at ways to getting them into the workforce? Because we all know there is a massive shortage now of exactly these sort of skills. So is it push or pull? <sighs> Sustainability, climate change should be a renaissance period and era for the industry. There are so many folks that care about this. So many folks who are really worried about this as well. It shouldn't even be a push or a pull, right? It should just be a torrent, right? And just, and actually it should be kind of trying to, trying to manage the, you know, everybody knocking on the, on the door. I think there's a systemic rethink that needs to be done around entry routes, which if we want, we can call it a push, but it's like we're put, they're pushing. And when I say push, I mean kind of the, the folks that would be entering, they're pushing and that door is either stuck or they're pushing and there's only one door where there should be several doors. So if you want a lot of folks in, 
and it's empty inside, then make more doors to allow, you know, that free flow. I mean, this is rather than push or the pull, it's what are the extra routes or extra options kind of touching almost on this theme of equitable practice to say, yes, where historically science and this particular science route has been the route in, we've missed out on so much talent, so much passion by putting that as the be all and end all, putting that as the only way or having a very narrow set of entry routes in. And this isn't just about young people and whether they did a BTEC or a GCSE or a T-level or, or a degree or a degree apprenticeship, but it's also, guess what? There are people that aren't young that care a lot about this. And so what are the alternate routes that you have for them where you have an asset-based approach to saying, okay, they don't have that science degree, but here's what they do have. And how does that map into what we need across the industry? A lot of these sustainability principles are learnable. You know, you weren't born with the knowledge. But also, are we missing out on a kind of cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary approach to this that could help all of us get there faster, but because we're not valuing some of those alternate skills or we're not valuing some of those other perspectives, that then we're missing out on the talent that we really should have given we've got that shortfall. So I, 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 I don't know, does that mean push or pull? That means something slightly, there's a different dimension, isn't there really, Sarah? I don't have the scientific um, vocabulary to be able to describe. I think <laughs> Dynamic sounds about right to me with a you know with barely a maths O level. <laughs> um, but obviously there's a lot of hope and expectation on tech solutions for the climate crisis. How important a role do you think that technological solutions like negative emissions technologies should play in, in tackling climate change? If you've got a set of tools and there's a tool set that's out, I don't know why you wouldn't want to make most use of them. I think with technology, there's something it's repeatable, it's deterministic. And so there's a lot of scope for improvement, for progression, for solving the problem that we're trying to solve, really, in this whole space, in using technology. So one is repeatability. I think the other thing is processing, like understanding insights and data. And there's something about uh, and this can be good and can be bad, right? It's, it's the evil side and it's the, and it's the good side, but there's something about being able to process a lot of data, being aware of how that data is collected and what the intentions were for the data at the beginning, but also being conscious of the problem and the question you're trying to solve in the analysis that you're doing of the data. And I think it's going to be really important to be vigilant of those because in other scenarios and other settings, the example or the analogy I'd give is you can build an algorithm that tells you what the best sandwiches are to make and create for lunch at a particular business based on data of orders of lunch in that place and across that chain. But, you know, that data that you're collecting is only for where you have in that chain and only for the sandwich orders that are within the remit of what you've been able to collect and the information, the quality of information that you've wanted. But also some people don't have sandwiches for lunch. And so we can't really blame the data entirely because you've only collected data on sandwiches. And if they don't, if they have fish and chips, where does that leave you? And so it's important who is around the table asking the questions, going back to our diversity and equity piece. But also it's then also looking at the data that, that is collected, the way it's collected, the nature it's collected. And we have to maintain, I have to say this is not neutral. Data itself is not neutral. It's never neutral. Life is much more complicated than maths, right? So when, when we talk about two as a mathematician, we're talking about the same two. However, when you go into real life, that two is not the same whoever you've asked where you've counted it you know who is included in that too if we go back far enough you know the two may have just been you know we had this on the census right at one point the two people in that was two families it wasn't two human beings 
Whereas now we're counting down to children, number of children that too could be, the, the numbers aren't neutral because they're not collected neutrally because we're not living in a fantasy maths, pure maths world. We're living in a more complicated world than that. And so I think there's scope as, as folks using tech. If we, again, have the right digital literacy, the right technical literacy that we can approach this and we can really solve the problem. But but remember, this is about in, in, the, the, the true innovation comes from interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary. So as much as you can say, this isn't just about the tech, but this is about the tech married with the art, married with the science, married with the social science, married with the history, married with the whatever, taking a cross-curricular approach to this, take a broader uh, view. So I'd, I'd like to pick up this point you made about sustainability and hope and the future. I mean, you're already, you have a living legacy of all those uh, amazing young people who are now can code, who now have job prospects for the next 20 or 30 years, who, who will be carrying that flame. But what current projects are you looking at for the next year or next couple of years? And what gives you hope as well? I mean, particularly from the point of sustainability as well. So I'll, I'll take it, I guess, in reverse. I think what gives me hope is that there are a lot of people that are interested in this and whether the industry creates extra doors for them or not, there are a lot of things that can happen independently of the institutions and of the companies. And so what gives me hope is that folks will find a way one way or another. If they have the right skills, if they've had the right formative experiences, if they've got those opportunities, they will find a way to convert those and use those. The other thing that gives me hope is that the next generation has an involved definition of what success looks like which I remember even when I graduated, you know, what I was looking for and what I thought would be success is so different from when we talked to Stemets at the moment. Like the level of altruism, but also the idea of bringing others along with them is so embedded and so entrenched in them that that gives me hope. I think the final piece that gives me hope, and it ties into some of the newer bits that we're now doing at Stemets, is there are a lot of technologies, a lot of trends, a lot of things that are moving very quickly. And often the innovation is built with one mind and one use case at the forefront. But, you know, a lot of that technology, a lot of those concepts are reusable. A lot of them are transferable to other spheres. And so what excites me is as much as folks can wring their hands and should wring their hands about ChatGPT and AI and, you know, big data and blockchain and whatever else it might be, is that these are all tools that, you know, the more that we do what we do, the more that folks step into this technical agency, which is what my book was, what She's in Control is all about, the more that different folks will be able to apply those in their circumstances to the problems that they're trying to solve. I have hope in the future of sustainability and what will be possible and how much we will be able to solve problems. Like I said, it with an interdisciplinary and broader and more open mind and more open set of folks, diff- more diverse set of folks. Um, and so I have a lot of hope in that, but I think that what I'm working on next, or so what we're working on next is, I kind of just want Stemets to be another 10 years. I'm, the team and everyone always looks at me funny when I say that, but the aim isn't that we exist forever, but it's that there are enough changes and edits that we can now make to the system from what we've learned over the last 10 years. And whether that's curriculum changes that we're advocating for now to ensure that, you know, where you have the name of that dead white guy with a beard in the curriculum not looking at anyone in particular, but let's say, I don't know, Newton's laws of uh, motion or whatever, whatever Newton's, the Newtonian laws are, that we have women's names alongside those, just in equal 
proportion. I mean, they're not, not asking for it to be flooded and everyone to know all the women's names, which they really should. Every time we're on Wi-Fi, we should really be thanking Eddie Limar. Every time you're following your blue dot, we should really be thanking Gladys West. Every time you put a bulletproof vest on, you should really be thanking Stephanie Kwolek. So that is what I'm working on next. But whether that is writing another book about what is our definition of success, what does that look like for the next generation, whether that is a lot more policy changes, whatever it's going to take, I will continue to do it because this is so important. This is more important than, you know, just me or just, you know, what, what I feel on, on any given Friday. I've still got hope. As much as I look like an optimist in a lot of the things I end up saying, I think I'm also a realist. And so what I do also end up saying is if we're not careful, that robot apocalypse is going to come at us very quickly and will kill a lot of people by accident unnecessarily. There may come a day that I'm like, do you know what? It's too late. We've gone too far. It's gone on too long. Those poor decisions have been made for so long that now actually we've passed the point of no return. And then I will disappear probably in East London into my bunker. <laughs> Never have to be one? seen again. <laughs> <laughs> and just as a final thought, that see it to be it is something that just, wasn't there when I was growing up and yet it's still so important I think that's one of the things that even now talking to our students and our, our, our young members it's still see it to be it unless I see someone who looks like me doing a role it's very difficult to imagine myself in that role and that, that makes and that's what makes it makes me furious though because the see it to be it is so important and yet we've got we've had so much erasure of so many folks that we should see and not everybody needs it to be, I think is the other thing we should say, right? I didn't need to see it to be it myself because I was, I was following the mat and wasn't actually seeing anything else. But <laughs> I think it's so frustrating that there's so many people that folks should see. There's stories that we just don't tell. There are, you know, we've hidden all the names of the women that rebuilt Waterloo Bridge have been completely obscured to the point we, we can't even name them. You know, if I talk about the 1960s, we talk about miniskirts, Twiggy, and, you know, England winning the Men's World Cup. I was furious the day I learned who Stephanie Shirley was because I was like, I wasn't here for the 1960s, and those are the stories that you told me, and that's a pretty big story that I feel like I'd rather know about her than Twiggy. No offence at all to Twiggy. And and that, you know, that idea of stories is um, so important. And I think that moves us really nicely on to your own hero, um, the person that inspired you, and why they did and how they did. So I've got a couple of these, but I know some of them are harder to reach out to than others. So I chose one that is definitely alive and would definitely is able to respond to emails in a timely fashion. Um, so but Abadesi Osasade is my chosen hero and she runs something called Hustle Crew. She inspires me because she's so measured, so researched, but so practical in the way that she talks around about equity, the way that she talks about workplaces, the way that we, she talks about technical spaces and culture and the edits we, we need to make. And there's so many resources that she puts out, there's training that she does, there's a newsletter that she has, but I, I wish more people could hear about her. I wish more folks could hear and use a lot of the, the devices and the things that she that she ends up pulling together. One example I reference in the book, so in, in my book, She's in Control, she's one of the one of the folks that, we, that I talked to. She, we talked about this notion of the belonging check. The way I describe it, I guess, is that, you know, we all know what spell check is or we remember spell check. But it was so interesting, this notion and this idea that we make decisions several, if not hundreds of times a day. And so having a belonging check on your decisions and on the way that you work, the way that you do business and almost, I guess, eventually the way that you do life 
where as you are approaching a meeting, as you're approaching a decision that you're making, have you thought about not just the diversity, the equality, the equity and the inclusion, but the belonging, the impact on belonging for historically marginalized groups as you are making that decision? Like, who have you forgotten about? Who are you not including? Who is going to be made to feel like they belong as a result of that decision, that norm, that reference that you're making versus who will it be reinforced that they don't belong? There's a role for each of us to play because each of us is a part of making those decisions. And so whether it's the who you go to next in the meeting or who you invite or who, who's involved in putting the agenda together versus who runs it versus who answers questions and who asks questions. And, you know, as we were talking earlier, those folks who don't have those science degrees but do still have value, what is our belonging check on our recruitment processes to ensure that we are doing that in an inclusive way where we can then benefit from that value. And so Abadesi is um, my hero for, for that. I would love for her to see more flowers, but I think there's definitely a lot of scope, uh, even you can, as we're talking about across the sustainability world, to, to learn from a lot of what is coming out of Hustle Crew. We'll meet Abadesi Osasade in the next episode. Before then, you can find out more about her and Hustle Crew in the show notes where you'll also find links to Anne-Marie's book, She's in Control, that's CTRL, rather like the computer key, and to the STEMETS website. And finally, Sustainable Matters is all about big ideas and technical solutions, but we also want it to be useful right off the bat by providing really practical advice, as well as more food for thought. So every guest is asked to come armed with their tips, tricks and career hacks, which might just help us all. What's your top tip for keeping on learning? You're someone for whom learning is right at the heart of what you do. What would be your top tip? Um, so my top tip for learning is that it's it always be learning. It's everywhere. I think a lot of folks think that doing the course or... And, and often it is course. There's, I mean, and, and I know sometimes it's nice to have the information packaged up, but actually you should be always on the lookout for learning. So there's always more to click on. There's always a search to do. There's always a question to ask. So I would say lean into the non-formal aspects and views of learning much as much as possible, but also have a learning tribe that you're able to do that with. So don't learn alone, I think would be the other, would be my other top tip. So there you go, yes. two for one. That's brilliant. Thank you. And best networking hack. It's always the thing that gets kind of you know, worries people. How do I get into that room and actually make my presence felt? One that we learned very early on with Stemets is um, always be the first person to ask a question. And don't do this in an annoying way. What I'm about to say, don't do it in an annoying way. But always be the first person to ask the question. As soon as the thing is done, always be the first person to ask the question. Have a real question. So have a question prepared that's almost boilerplate, like uh, everyone's talking about ChatGPT now. What are your views on this and tie it to something they've said or ask a real question that's come up, but always start the question with an introduction of who you are, what you do and the problem that you're solving. I now laugh regularly at the number of times that (laughs) my team have been like, oh my goodness. And people will come up and be like, oh, I love what you said. I love what you, what you're, you know, you're, and it's almost as if you're a speaker on the, on the stage. Um, so yeah, so that's always, that's always my top network. And then, and then folks that are interested in the problem you're trying to solve or in what you said, or who you are, will then come and find you. So also I'll stand up and ask the question. So you're visible and you're seen in the room. It's not very quick, is it? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I love that one about asking the first question. That is so helpful, especially if you are, as I often am, the person up on the stage chairing the event and desperate for someone to pipe up so I can guarantee you success with that top tip. My name is Sarah Mukherjee. Thank you so much for listening to Sustainable Matters. Abadesi Osasade from Hustle Cruise up next. Then it's the turn of food campaigner, entrepreneur, ex-government advisor and now author Henry Dimbleby, who tells me about what's wrong with the food systems in the UK and how he thinks we could fix them to help the environment and our health. The commercial incentives companies are so intense for them to market to us food that our ancient evolved appetites love that they do that more and more we eat more and more and we get sick and this junk food cycle you're only going to break that by tackling those commercial incentives to make sure you don't miss any of the episodes follow sustainable matters wherever you find your podcasts and don't forget to rate review and recommend it to a friend or colleague Sustainable Matters, a podcast series full of solutions and optimism for a more sustainable world. Brought to you by IEMA, the professional institute for everyone interested in sustainability.